You're listening to the Health Call Radio Hour, where doctors, researchers, authors, nutritionists, and top health professionals share the latest news about staying well and living better. The information you hear today is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, but it's always timely, credible, interesting, and best of all, there's never a copay. Now, here's your host, health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. It is great to be with you again. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for making the Health Call Radio Hour a part of your weekend or whenever you're listening, if you're in your ear as a podcast. 2023 seems to be off to a rocky start in many ways, but I think we can all agree the wave of mass shootings at the start of the year is something to pay attention to. The National Threat Assessment Center recently put out a report examining 173 mass shootings in public places over a five-year period in which three or more people were shot or killed. They call it the most comprehensive examination of the perpetrators yet. And yes, they came to several key points and recommendations, but kind of hate to tell you this, there's no new big idea, no specific solution to the problem. American Public Health Association has been focusing on the problem of gun violence for quite some time. So I reached out to the executive director, Dr. Georges Benjamin, to get his thoughts on this report, its recommendations, and what it means if we look beyond the police and the court system and start treating gun violence as a public health problem. You know, it's a significant concern. You know, over 42,000 people uh, die each and every year um, from um, gun-related events. And, you know, more than twice that, over 100,000. People are injured from firearms. And I think the real tragedy here, what makes it a public health issue, is that it's preventable. A lot of it's preventable. Oh, good. I want to get into how we, how you think we can do that. One of the things I want to do is walk through just a few key points of this report and see what your thinking is on those. Here's one of them, for example. Most of the attackers had exhibited behavior that elicited concern in family, friends, acquaintances. And those individuals had feared for the safety of themselves or others. I think we've all heard this. We we know that in many cases we hear that uh, the attackers set off red flags for people. What is the reddest of the red flags that we need to be paying attention to? Well, you know, I think that's the, the first one. And that's the most important part of this is that when we do the look back on almost every single one of these mass shootings, there was something there that had we identified it and acted, we mm-hmm. might have been able to prevent it. And so... You know, you have a family member that's in trouble. You know, if you had a family member that had chest pain and you knew the signs and symptoms of a heart attack, you would work with them to get them to the hospital. Um, And here we have someone who is having challenges. They um, have been more aggressive. They've done something that concerns you. And you have to deep digger, you know, deep deeper and try to figure out what's going on. And maybe they need some help. And as a family member or someone close to them, you should be able to help them. So I've seen many cases, though, in in which the family did reach out. Uh, Heck, there was a case in Indianapolis, a mass shooting at a FedEx depot where the 19-year-old young man had been in contact with police. They'd taken away his weapons. Their incident report even said that he intended to to pull a gun on officers and try to commit suicide by cop. I mean, these cases happen over and over again. Um, where are we falling short? What's not out there in the system to help these families? You know, somewhere along the way, we're not listening 
well enough, and we're often not connecting the dots. So simply being trouble may not be enough, but when someone says they're going to hurt someone, that should be a red flag. When someone has been involved in domestic violence case, that should be a red flag. And we should be following those cases along. And they, and they may not require police intervention initially. They may require psychological intervention or social services intervention, but they need help. And we have not really crafted a societal system to wrap them around the things to provide them with that help. Now, look, there are evil people out there, too. Mm-hmm. There are people who sure. have simply lost it. Um, and we have to identify those people as well. So if I'm in that situation, if I have a family member and I've reached out police and, and they're saying, well, there's nothing we can w- really do, where in the public health system do I turn? What's my next step? And is the public health system the place to go? I, I think the, the a crisis mental health line can be helpful. Uh, if your city has one, and many of the cities do have one, uh, I think that you can certainly be more persistent with police. You know, quite commonly, they don't want to violate that person's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, mental health and 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 lock them up. But you often have to be persistent. The other thing you can do, of course, is take the weapons out of the home. Sure. Take those weapons away, um, get them out of the house. Um, And again, as there a lot of times these events accelerate over time. Today, the person's angry. Tomorrow, they're more distressed. They're more violent. Um, they become withdrawn. So understanding what the signs and symptoms are of a distressed family member or friend can be very important. You know, that, that six-year-old that shot his teacher, in retrospect, we know that there were lots of red flags or lots of warning signs. Someone fell down on the on the job there and looks like not only one person, but maybe several. And that does seem to happen time and again and again. What are you seeing across the country? Are there any examples you can point to where things have been done well, that uh, communities have stepped up and taken action that was effective? Well, we we do see more and more where families have, you know, they're putting red flag laws and those mm-hmm. firearms are taken out of the home. So we know that that's a policy that works. We know that licensing firearms um, reduces um, the wrong people, you know, getting the getting those job, those um, guns, um, criminal background checks. But we just have to be persistent. I think the one thing we have to stop doing is saying that because this event happened and a particular law would not have stopped it, we shouldn't do it. You know, we learned a long time ago when our kids were dying from automobile crashes that we needed a multi-sectorial, you know, comprehensive approach to making people safe in their cars, making uh, people safe driving their cars, and making the community safe with cars and people in it. We need to do the same thing with firearms. We clearly have far too many firearms in the community, and we have firearms that aren't safe, and we have people that are not safe with their firearms, and we darn sure have many of the wrong people with firearms often when they shouldn't have them. Simply locking up the weapon in a gun box, separating the firearm from the bullets because kids find those weapons. Um, Again, licensing, closing the criminal background check loopholes will help keep these things away. I do think um, there is one class of firearms that we need to take another serious look at. And of course that's weapons of war, Uh, assault weapons, um, and at least raising the age so that Assault weapons, you can buy an assault weapon 
at the age of 18, you ought not be able to buy that until you're an adult, full adult at 21. Now, some people would argue, yeah, well, we, we allow people to go into the military at 17, 18 years of age. And my retort to that is, yes, under a well-regulated militia. Mm-hmm. We don't let kids buy them on their own. They should not be able to buy these weapons on their own. Yeah, I can just, I, I know out there in the radio audience, somebody is screaming at the radio saying, so what's an assault weapon? Uh, you know, anything can be an assault weapon. Are you talking about high capacity magazines? Are you talking about weapons of a certain caliber? We, 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 have, to, we, have, to be, we have to be thoughtful about it. And, and it's true. Um, you, can, you can take a weapon that you put on a list, you can adjust it, and no, it no longer sits on the list. And people will find a way to get around uh, any rule that we put out there. But the issue here is in public health is reducing the risk, reducing the number of firearms that are in people's hands, reducing the risk of firearms in the wrong hands in particular, and reducing the ability to kill many, many people in, in seconds. If you tuned in a little late, that is the head of the American Public Health Association, Dr. Georges Benjamin. He acknowledges America's thoughtful, legal gun owners typically are not the problem. But we have all seen that people do slip through the cracks and people with bad backgrounds get their hands on weapons used in mass shootings. Most of these assaults happen in the workplace where we are vulnerable. What's the threat assessment report have to say about that? What can you do if you're worried about a coworker and no one listens? Let's find out as we continue with the Health Call Radio Hour, right here on WoWo. You're listening to the Health Call Radio Hour, your regular weekend appointment with top healthcare professionals, where every session is painless and we never keep you waiting. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. Welcome back. Thank you for staying with us. We are taking a look at a new report from the National Threat Assessment Center examining 173 mass shootings and what we've learned about the attackers. Most of these killers had some form of criminal history. 58% had a known mental health challenge, and the vast majority had behaviors that raised concern among family, friends, or co-workers who may have considered them a loner or antisocial, and they may actually have been a bully or harass others at one point or another. Often, this behavior was noticed a year or more before they pulled the trigger. 66% of the killers offered some type of threatening communication, but only a handful put out a threat specific enough for police to take action. The report says waiting for a specific threat creates a missed opportunity to prevent the violence that follows. And the executive director of the American Public Health Association agrees. And since most mass shootings happen in the workplace, Dr. Georges Benjamin says this is a problem that all of us need to take more seriously. We have to do a better job of educating um, people in the workplace, managers, human resource people who are often in the position of dismissing people. Um, and understand that when a person gets dismissed from a job or has felt they've been aggrieved at a job, that, that becomes a high-risk incident. And we need to pay attention to those high-risk incidents, particularly when we have those other um, events that occurred where the person has um, shown some behavior in the workplace that um, concerned their family members or concerned their workers. 
when they've made threats. Again, connecting the dots will help us reduce this risk. And, and you know, are we going to get rid of every single one of them? Of course not. But the goal is to dramatically reduce them. Look, other nations have done it, and we can do it here. There's nothing inherent in the, in the, the American culture that makes us more violent or makes us more likely to do this thing, except the way we handle firearms, which is quite differently than other nations. So what are my options if I'm an employee and I'm concerned about a coworker who I think has the potential for violence and, and I feel as though my manager just isn't taking it seriously enough, um, the, I, I contact police and they say, well, has he done anything yet? And of course the answer exactly. there is no. What, what choice, what can I do? Now, the next course person, if your manager won't do it, you go to human resources and file a complaint, not just a verbal complaint, but put it in writing. Um, and then go to your boss's boss. Um, you just have to be persistent. We have to not be afraid to make those reports. And people in human resources have become have to become better trained at how to get help when they've they're at their wits end with an employee. You know, so we're we're focusing here in this particular report on mass shootings. But what are we seeing with homicide in general? It feels as though the streets are getting more dangerous. Do the facts support that? Depends on where you are. Um, actually, all in all, the individual violence in our communities, depending on the community, overall are down. But we have these high-level mass shootings that are up. And post-COVID, we are seeing an uptick uh, in violence in many communities. We've seen an uptick in stress, broad stress in our communities. Um, and that, that, tragically, like many of the other health things, um, is because we really isolated from ourselves. We've become very stressful. People have lost their jobs. They've lost money. The stock market is down. People are under enormous stress. And so we do need to spend a lot more time giving people me time, trying to give them the opportunity to, to think about things and to give them the mental health support that they need. Yeah, I saw a study that uh, took a look at uh, suicide attempts with firearms among senior citizens, people aged 65. And, you know, you, they're pretty darn effective. They get the job done a high percentage of the time. It's, it is really a sad scenario, isn't it? Well, it's loneliness. And, you know, I tell folks, reach out to your family members. If you have a neighbor that you know lives alone, reach out to them. Don't, don't let them be alone. And we as a society have got to recognize that we are our brother's keeper. And unless we start wrapping our arms around our family members, our friends, um, you know, getting out to know our neighbors, you know, most of us get in our car in the morning, drive out of our suburbs or even out of our urban settings and go to work and then come back. We drive in the garage and we never meet, really meet our neighbors. We need to do a better job of, of getting to know our neighbors and really building community uh, back again. And the last, you know, two and a half years of COVID only made it worse. Yeah. Well, I have to agree with you on that. So, Washington, as part of uh, recent legislation, has included, I think, $100 million or more in community-related efforts to stop gun violence and violence in general. Can you look across the country and tell me what has worked? Are there some programs you can point to that are effective in that way? You know, there's a group called Cure Violence that um, out in California um, that does violence interruption. Uh, they're a very good group. And you know, there's a group out, uh, in Boston that also does the same kind of thing. This is a group that engages in the community. They use prior either gang members or people who have been shot. Um, they know the community. They reach out into the community. 
when someone's been comes into the hospital and has been shot uh, and survived, the, the likely scenario is that when they get well and go back out, somebody else comes in dead. And so they try to interrupt that violent activity by working with both the patient uh, and, if they can, the people that put them in the hospital to try to interrupt that next phase of violence. These groups also enter into domestic violence situations. They engage with um, people who have been abused, male to male, female to female, male to female, uh, doesn't matter, domestic violence situations, and they engage that to try to de-escalate that violence before a firearm is, is used. And then, of course, trying to reduce the incidence of, of firearms in those homes by getting people, again, to store their weapons properly, get the firearm out of the home, um, if, if in any way possible. And look, there are a lot of guns in homes where people really don't want them there. Uh, they mm -hmm. were left there by an old family member. Um, a boyfriend left the, the gun at the home. They, those guns can be turned in. Gun buyback programs. Um, gun turn-in days. All of those kinds of things that law enforcement does to reduce the number of firearms in our community. I want to circle back to your ER experience there. When I'm discharged after being victim of a gunshot, is there any defined follow-up? Does anything happen on that social, psychological side, or are you just sent home and, you know, here's some antibiotics and good luck? Yeah, far too often you're just sent home. But in, when we do have those programs, those violent interrupter programs, they do constantly. They do engage people in the community. Um, they try to work with those individuals, um, understanding how they got into that situation in the first place. You know, a lot of times people are shot simply because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. They were a bystander that got hit. Um, right. And so trying to get them out of those situations can sometimes be difficult because they work in the hood or they work in a place where there's been workplace violence. Okay, we strayed away from the mass shooting report a little bit there with Dr. Georges Benjamin from the American Public Health Association, but I think it was a worthwhile conversation. The stressors that affect all of us seem to be hitting the mass shooters harder. According to this National Threat Assessment Center's analysis, 76% of mass shooters suffer from financial stress of some form. A third had unstable housing. About half of them were the target of official action. They'd been disciplined or demoted at work. They'd been served legal notice of divorce, expulsion, or eviction of some such thing. 23% of cases involved a person who knew the shooter felt fear because of their odd behavior, but then took no action. As I said earlier, this report does not identify a single solution to mass shootings, but it does put us all on notice. It is time for us to listen to our instincts and speak up. Speak up when we sense trouble and keep raising the alarm until someone with the power to respond takes action. I'll put a link to this report in the show notes of the podcast. The Health Call Facebook page has the link, and you'll find the link on the Health Call website. That's healthcall.live. We have a lot more to come in the second half of the show, so I hope you'll stay tuned for the second half of the Health Call Radio Hour, right here on WoWo. Podcasts by Federated Media.